Welcome to the Faith Women Podcast. We're a community of women at Faith Baptist Church in Youngsville, North Carolina, that desires to honor the Word of God, to support our church, and to encourage each other as we know, grow, serve, and go. Through these episodes, we'll be introducing you to our ministry team, sharing truth from God's Word, and challenging you to grow in your love for the Lord and those He's called you to serve. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Good morning, ladies. My name is Jessica Lawler, and I am so excited and honored to be with you. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and the biblical call that we have to follow Jesus' example to fight overwhelm with Scripture. I can't wait to dive in. When I was 13, my family went on an incredible camping trip out west. We went to Utah and Nevada and New Mexico. And in Utah, we went to Zion National Park and we hiked the Narrows. Now, if you've never been, the Narrows is a gorge with walls a thousand feet high. And you walk through the bottom at the, at, in the river, which is only 20 to 30 feet wide. It's rocky and craggy, uncultivated. It's wild. Now, before the trek, we had to go through safety training because there's always a threat of flash floods in the canyon. And the guide told us that if you hear rushing water or screaming, you immediately get to higher ground. So we're wading through the river and it's at our ankles or my mid-calf because I've always been quite compact. And all of a sudden, we hear a booming sound. Boom, boom, boom. I immediately shift into panic mode and start looking for a rock or a ledge to climb on. Now, there are very few choices as it's literally a sheer rock cliff on either side of me. So I'm yelling at my family, leave the stuff, follow me. I channel my inner mountain goat and I climb up and hide behind a small rock pile. My parents are still on the canyon floor, looking around for the source of the noise. They round the bend out of sight, and I am beside myself with worry, convinced that I am now an orphan and crying out to God for protection and deliverance. Now, we found out that around the corner from where I was cowering, there are underwater potholes that go very deep down. So people were climbing up 50 feet and jumping off the walls into these deep holes, which caused, you guessed it, the booms. Now, we can laugh about it, sort of, but at the, at the time, I was terrified. My surroundings in the wilderness of Utah were breathtakingly beautiful, but they were also lonely and uncertain and potentially dangerous. Now, we know from the text that was just read that Jesus was sent to a physical wilderness. But throughout all of our lives, we will go through wilderness seasons of isolation and doubt, difficulty, pain, and overwhelm. So today we're going to look at scripture, and we're going to look at how Satan tempted Jesus and the powerful tool that Christ used to resist the temptation and put Satan in his proper place. So let's get started. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. We know that one chapter earlier, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist as a commissioning for his earthly ministry. 
It was like a coronation ceremony that declared to the world, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings. Matthew 3.17 records God speaking from heaven, declaring, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus had been living in obscurity for 30 years, and this is his first public appearance, if you will. Now, isn't it interesting that God is well pleased with him before he's even done anything publicly yet? God is pleased simply because of who Jesus is. At the the baptism, we have a proclamation of kingship, and then immediately we're going to see a test of that kingship. So he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness of Judea is a hot, barren, desolate area that extends from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. It's filled with blistered limestone, dusty hills, and jagged rocks. Now, this desert is known to get less than two inches of rain each year, and Mark describes it as having wild animals roaming. The wilderness was an epitome of isolation, danger, and discomfort. And why was he led into the wilderness? To be tempted. Now, this word can sometimes be translated as tested, but tested is actually a neutral term, and it depends on who is doing the testing. Testing includes a refining, a way to determine character and obedience. But the word here, tempted, means literally to entice to sin. So we know that in this instance, God didn't cause the temptation, but he did allow it. James 1.13 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God will never put us through a temptation in hopes that we will sin. Throughout the Bible, we see many different instances of God's people having their faith tested. The book of Job records an important and a really interesting conversation between Satan and God. Satan says that God's servant Job, a man we know who was of complete integrity, who feared God and turned away from evil, only worships the Lord because of what God has given him. God allows Satan to test Job to see if his faith is genuine. Satan proceeds to take away Job's health, his wealth, his ten children, but still scripture records that Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Likewise, the end of Genesis tells the story of Joseph, a man who was unjustly mistreated, sold into slavery, accused of something he did not do, thrown into prison, and then forgotten about. His season of testing lasted 20 years. But in the end, did he rail against God? Did he seek his own revenge? No. Genesis 50, 20 records Joseph saying, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So we know that God didn't tempt Jesus, but it was the devil. And let's talk about Satan for a minute. Who is he? There are many names for Satan in Scripture, but some of them are he's the accuser, the slanderer, the ruler of this world, the destroyer, and the tempter. But it's very important for us to also remember who Satan is not. Satan is not God's equal. He is not omniscient, omnipresent. He is not omnipotent nor eternal. Satan does not know nor control the future. 
the devil is not able to separate us from God. And he has a very focused purpose. The devil's purpose is to frustrate the plan of God and to usurp the place of God. And how does he do it? His method, he is skilled at deception. John 8, says, When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, we know that repetition in the Bible is very important. So do you think John is trying to tell us something here? Satan is crafty, but he's not creative. He uses the same old tactics again and again throughout history to draw people away from the one true God. 1 John 2.16 says that he uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. Let's look at verse 2. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. Numbers in the Bible may be literal or figurative or both. 40 is an important number in the Bible, and it represents an epoch or a long period of time. We see repeated examples of 40 days or 40 years, which generally represents one generation. And when we see the number 40 in Scripture, it clues us in to themes of trial, testing, trouble, and triumph. The number 40 comes with an expectancy. And in my life, I pray that God grows and refines me in periods of 40 days rather than 40 years. Verse 3, Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan starts with the most basic. He speaks to his physical need for food and water. Now we know that Jesus was hungry after 40 days. He was fully human after all. But is this only about satisfying a physical need? No. Below the surface, Satan is casting doubt on God's word and tempting Jesus to act out of turn. If you are the son of God. Here Satan is not questioning the fact of God's sonship, but he's tempting him to misuse his power to prove that he was in fact equal to God. Jesus had lived in anonymity for the past 30 years, remember. So now Satan's asking him to show off a little, prove that he's divine. If the Father won't provide food, Jesus should miraculously provide for himself. He's capable. He is the Son of God, after all. So here we see that Satan is tempting Jesus with the idea of self-provision. However, this temptation is asking Jesus to go against his character. We know from Scripture that Jesus was faithful to obey God the Father as to when and how to use his power. John 12, 49-50, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Satan is tempting Jesus to act independently of what God the Father has instructed him, something Jesus simply cannot do. And in verse 4, Jesus combats temptation with Scripture. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is reminding us that it's better to obey and depend on God for His timely provision rather than selfishly and impulsively grabbing what we think will satisfy us in the moment. 
especially if those things cause us to disobey or compromise his word. When he responds to Satan's temptation, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And in this verse, Moses is reminding the Israelites of the unmatched love and blessing that Yahweh poured out on his people when they were wandering in the desert. The people had no home, no farms, no way to provide daily food for themselves. And they were hungry, or should I say, hangry. So what did God do? He lavishly provided for his chosen people. He rained down miraculous manna in the morning and quail in the evening. Each family was to gather just enough for that day, no more. And if they tried to hoard extra, it was smelly and filled with maggots the next morning. Why? Because God wanted them to trust Him to provide. On the sixth day, they were allowed to gather enough for two days because the seventh day was a Sabbath, a day set apart for worship and rest. So again, God provides for His people, both physically and spiritually. And why did God deliver this amazing to-go order from heaven each day? Because the Israelites' whining was getting on His nerves? Because they earned it with their good behavior? No. In Exodus 16, 12, Moses records God saying, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. One of the important names of God in Scripture is Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide. Just like the Israelites were called to rely on God for their daily food, we are to depend on God for salvation, for ultimate truth, and for wisdom as we journey through life. Satan tempted Jesus to provide bread for himself to satisfy a temporary fleshly need. But God doesn't offer impulsive, fleeting, or short-lived solutions. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Ladies, when you are tempted to satisfy your own needs and buy the temporary solution that the world is offering, choose instead to be satisfied by the only one who can eternally provide for your soul. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan brings Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, according to church history, we believe that the pinnacle was on the eastern side of the temple, standing 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. The devil once again opens with, If you are the Son of God, taunting Jesus to prove his divine authority to the world with something sensational. Satan then uses scripture. Have you thought that about the fact that the devil knows the Bible? To say, if you will provide for yourself, then let God provide for you. Satan twists Jesus' earlier rebuttal and tempts him to doubt God's goodness. Now, this act would have been exactly the sort of thing that people wanted to see to confirm that Jesus was the Messiah. Many false prophets claiming to be Messiah tried different miraculous feats to prove to the people that they were, in fact, the Son of God. One man led a group from Jerusalem to the Jordan River, promising to split the waters 
The waters kept flowing, and the people disbanded, unmoved. Another man claimed he would destroy the walls of Jerusalem with the command of his mouth. The walls stood strong. Acts 8 tells us of Simon the magician. Simon tried to do the very thing Satan is tempting Jesus with. He jumped off the top of the temple, losing his life and his followers. The fantastic, the miraculous, has always appealed to the flesh. Many would believe anything or anyone as long as they did something bizarre, unexplained, or magical. But as Scripture proves over and over, miracles do not produce faith. They can strengthen the faith of those who already believe. Like we just talked about, the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness did not produce a camp full of faithful, obedient servants of Yahweh. They grumbled. They doubted. They demanded more. And ultimately, they forgot. Jesus' miracles angered the Pharisees. The people who were fascinated by his words and wonders did not build a lasting faith, but instead were impressed one day and apathetic the next. They went from waving palm branches to calling for Jesus' death in a matter of days. Jesus said in Matthew 12, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Humans are naturally lovers of sensation, but not lovers of God. Demanding miraculous proof is not evidence of faith, but instead it reveals a heart that doubts. Verse 7, Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Once again, Jesus combats temptation with Scripture. Here he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. During their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites were often overwhelmed. Their grumbling turned quickly to unbelief, despite all that God did for them. The people were thirsty and complained to Moses, demanding that he give them water to drink. They then complained that Moses dragged them out of Egypt just to kill them of thirst in the wilderness. Moses is fed up with their whining and goes before the Lord, who miraculously provides water from a rock. In Hebrew culture, Masa is known for their rebellious attitude and their choice to complain to human leaders rather than to cry out to Yahweh. Jesus and Satan knew that to test God is to doubt God. Unbelief is a sin, and if Jesus had given in to Satan, he would have separated himself from his father and deviated from the divine plan of redemption. When we are overwhelmed with circumstances in this broken world, or facing the consequences of our own sin, it can be easy to doubt God's goodness. Too often we sit with our head down, dwelling on our situation, instead of lifting our eyes to the rock that is higher than ourselves and embracing an eternal perspective. We don't need to test God's faithfulness to us. He has proved His unconditional love countless times, most notably by sending His Son to die in the place of sinners, reconciling a lost people to himself. God's love does not need to be tested. It has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. When we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, we must choose to obey and trust that God is who he says he is. Verse 8, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. 
The previous temptations have been more subtle. Now, in one last-ditch effort, Satan tries to tempt Jesus to worship him. The first temptation focused on what Jesus could do for himself, the second what God could do for him, and the third what Satan would do. But Jesus would have to do something for him first. The devil takes Jesus up to a very high mountain. Now, we don't know exactly what mountain this is, but supernaturally, Satan and Jesus were able to see the wonders of the ancient world, Rome, Athens, Egypt, Corinth, and Jerusalem. Now, as God's son, the king of kings, Jesus stood to inherit all of these kingdoms. It's as if Satan is saying, why don't you take what is rightfully yours? You deserve to have it now. Why suffer as a servant when you could reign as a king now? Come on, I'm only offering what the Father has already promised you. Why wait? You can have it now. The devil offered something that Jesus didn't need. He tempted Jesus to doubt his identity as the Son of God, the ruler of the universe. Everything could be his because it already was. Giving in to this temptation would mean that Jesus would change his mission. Instead of the long, painful, humiliating road to the cross and the even longer wait in heaven until the Father's timing was complete, Jesus could rule the world now. The end is the same. Does the middle really matter? Yes. Yes, it does matter. Jesus was characterized by righteous obedience to the Father. What Satan was asking for was unrighteous disobedience. The end does not justify the means. John MacArthur, a pastor and Bible teacher in California, says that if Jesus had given in to the devil's third temptation, instead of redeeming the world, he would have joined the world. Instead of inheriting the world, he would have lost the world. The Christ would have played the Antichrist, and the Lamb would have become the beast. Giving in to temptation would be to deny his identity and say to the Father, I know better than you. This is how Satan often whispers temptations into our ears. You can get exactly what you want. You can fulfill your dreams, your fantasies, your lusts and whims. You can be somebody. And all you have to do? Deny your identity as one made in the image of a holy God. Don't choose submission. Choose satisfaction. He pits self-will against God's will. And just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, 4 through 5 tells us that Satan brushes aside Eve's comment about what God said will happen if they eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. He scoffs, no, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Every time, submitting to Satan brings death. When I was 16, my family moved to New York, and I spent countless days exploring New York City, eating, visiting museums, seeing Broadway shows, and shopping. You would often see vendors set up on the sidewalk with their tables and their blankets filled with merchandise. But you had to be discerning. A brand new leather coach purse for only $35? Cha-ching! Yes, please! But when you looked at it closely, you saw that the label didn't say coach, it said couch. It was a knockoff, a counterfeit. It was not what it appeared to be. And as the father of lies, Satan is a counterfeiter. He offers what appears to be the same as what God offers, 
And on the surface, the price is much cheaper. But if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. In the end, you will find that it actually costs you your soul. When we are secure in our identity, who we are, whose we are, created on purpose, created for a purpose, Satan's offer, it doesn't seem so enticing. Verse 10, Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus is done. He gives him an imperative, a command, Go away, Satan. Other versions read, Be gone or get behind me. Jesus' allegiance will not be swayed. He knows who he is and who he serves. While Satan is created, God is the creator. While Satan is the father of lies, God is absolute truth. While Satan has limited power, God's power is limitless. While Satan offers a cheap shadow of happiness and purpose, God offers the peace that passes understanding and the joy of eternal life. While Satan wants you to worship yourself, God alone is worthy of our worship. Verse 11, Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. Satan's power on this earth is still subservient to God's eternal power. When Christ told him to leave, he had to leave. Jesus verified the very sovereignty and power and authority that Satan had been tempting him to misuse when he sent him away. As we study this passage, we can be so encouraged by the example that Jesus left for us. While people throughout history and in scripture have been faced with overwhelming temptation, Jesus stood up to the test and reigned victorious over Satan. Jesus won this battle, a foreshadowing of the great triumphs to come. Jesus is our example. He was truly dependent on the Father. He trusted in God's goodness, and he was secure in his identity. He fought temptation with scripture, something that we are called to do. The book of Hebrews repeatedly teaches the idea that Jesus is better. He is superior to all other leaders, high priests, sacrifices, teachers, and prophets. He is the fulfillment of every promise. Now, if we think of this temptation story and compare it to the Garden of Eden, we see many similarities, but we also see some key differences. Adam and Eve were placed in the lush, beautiful Garden of Eden. All their needs were met. They enjoyed a beautiful, unbroken relationship with their Creator, and still they lost their battle with Satan. Jesus, the better Adam, was hungry, alone, and de- still defeated Satan in a terribly imperfect environment. Through Adam's one sin came spiritual death, degeneration, corruption, rebellion, sickness, pain, brokenness, and lawlessness, resulting in physical death and eternal separation from God. Through Christ's work of redemption, sins are forgiven. Atonement was made. Death is defeated. Righteousness is granted. Justice is satisfied. And reconciliation with the Father is achieved. Jesus is truly the better Adam, who obeyed the Father, resisted temptation, and shut down Satan. Now let's look at Moses. Moses and Jesus both started their lives hiding from a wicked king who sought to kill them. They both gave the law of God from the top of a mountain. They both led an exodus out of slavery, one physical, the other spiritual. Moses was born a slave, 
but adopted into royalty. Jesus was the King of Kings, yet willingly chose to become a suffering servant. Moses reflected God's glory, but Jesus is God's glory. Moses wrote the law on stone tablets. Jesus redeems our hearts of stone and writes God's law on them. Moses prayed and God sent food that was good for one day. But Jesus is the bread of life, which will last forever. The law given to Moses demanded perfect obedience, whereas Jesus demonstrated perfect obedience. Moses led the people in daily habitual sacrifices of lambs and rams, bulls and goats. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice of his own body. Moses' sin kept him from the promised land. Jesus took the sin of all so that we might enter the eternal promised land. Jesus is our deliverer, the better Moses. We can blame Satan for overwhelming us with temptation, but we see from Matthew 4 that temptation can be resisted. When we are overwhelmed and tempted to sin, we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can say no. As we see with Adam and Moses and Jesus, spiritual failure is not caused by outward circumstances, but by the character of the one who's being tempted. Now, ladies, we will probably never be pulled into the Judean desert to be overtly tempted by Satan, but we all experience wilderness seasons of testing and loneliness, sickness, doubt, pain, and overwhelm. God may send us to the wilderness as a consequence to our sin, or as a means for our sanctification. He always works for our good and His ultimate glory. When we go through a wilderness season, God calls on us to depend on Him daily. When we come to the end of ourselves, our strength, our solutions, it increases our intimacy with Him. Overwhelm can expose my wrong thinking about God, myself, and my circumstances, and I can replace it with truth from God's Word. Persevering through difficult circumstances can build and strengthen my spiritual muscles. And if someone makes it through the testing, through the temptation, through the wilderness, there is blessing on the other side. The Israelites conquered the promised land. Job was blessed with double the number of children and livestock he had lost. The angels came and ministered to Jesus, and he began his public ministry, calling sinners to salvation. But if we are to fight overwhelm, we have to follow Jesus' example. Christ had an it is written to combat each of Satan's temptations. To fight overwhelm with scripture, we must know what the Bible is, what the Bible says, and what the Bible means. So first of all, we have to know what the Bible is. Before we dive into scripture, we need to think rightly about what the Bible is. So if I were to ask you, what would you say? The Word of God is a book about God. It's written by many authors over a long period of time that tells the story of God's plan for creation, the fall of mankind into sin, Jesus' great mission to rescue people from their sin, and the restoration we look forward to when God will make all things right and we will spend eternity freely worshiping our Creator. The Bible is the way that God chose to speak to His people. So the Word of God must be held in high esteem. We need to remember that this book is special. It is not outdated. It is not written to steal our fun. It's not something to care about when you're old. 
It is life-giving. It is absolute truth, and it stands alone above any and every other book. So we can't mix it in with our collection of philosophy and self-help and history books on our shelves. It must be held in a higher regard. We are faced with all sorts of competing theology and conflicting moral truth. The world is able to find all sorts of books to support their wrong thinking and dangerous unbiblical beliefs. So ladies, if we don't believe that the Bible is the eternal, inerrant, authoritative, life-transforming Word of God, then it's just another book. The Word of God transforms us from the inside out. Hebrews 4.12 reads, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the word of God demands obedience. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Lastly, the word of God is eternal. Isaiah 48 says that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Secondly, we must know what the Bible says. Are you a student of scripture, or do you read it occasionally when you're in the mood? The Bible is a book. It's meant to be read again and again. Reading the Bible is a daily discipline that will change your heart. Many people know about the Bible without actually knowing their Bible. But if we're to wage war against the devil and stand up to the temptations of this world, we need to put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6 describes the armor we must wear as soldiers of the King of Kings. We put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes ready to share the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is, that's right, the Word of God. Five items used for defense and only one for offense, the Word. Thirdly, we need to know what the Bible means. We need to know more than just the words. We need to know the context and the heart behind the words. In our passage, Satan twisted scripture, just like he did in Eden. Non-believers, and sometimes even believers, will twist scripture to suit their needs and fit their agenda. They will sneer, did God really say? We must test what we hear. And we aren't able to assess truth if we don't know the truth. When I was in college, I was in a Christian worldview class. And every class period, 250 of us had to stand up and we had to quote Ephesians 4.14 that said, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness in the techniques of deceit. We have to be seeped in scripture so that we can fight against the world. Now let's talk about some strategies for studying the word for yourself. As a discipline, reading the Bible needs to be intentional. You want to set yourself up for success. You need to have a plan of where and when and what you're going to read. Personally, I get up early when the house is quiet and I read and study and pray. But the night before, I put my Bible, my journal, and a book on the table with a candle and my lighter. I program my Keurig to brew my coffee so it's ready when I wake up. 
I try to limit my distractions and the amount of decisions that I have to make so that I can just get up and dive in. Now, there's no verse in the Bible that says a quiet time must be 45 minutes long and must take place between 5.15 and 6 a.m. You need to pick a time that works, and this may change in different seasons of your life. When I had newborns and was dealing with interrupted sleep, I read my Bible during nap time. I've also had seasons where I played the Bible out loud through the Bible app at the breakfast table. When I had three kiddos under three and life felt slightly chaotic, I would often stick them in the bathtub to play while I sat on the floor with my Bible open. It doesn't matter what you do, it just matters that you do it. Now you may be thinking, I just don't have time. But here's a hard truth. We all have the same amount of time. We spend our time on what is important to us. Reading the Bible needs to be a priority if we are to grow as believers. One piece of advice I have is that if you miss a day or two, do it when you think of it. So if you're planning to read before bed and you forget one night but remember the next morning at 11 a.m., do it then. Don't try to wait until the next night to try to remember. Leave your Bible open on the kitchen counter as a visual reminder. Put your phone underneath it. You'll be drawn to your Bible all day long. You also want to have a plan of what to read. Reading one verse on Instagram a few times a week is not going to build your Bible literacy. You need to dive deep into the Word if it's going to shape your mind and permeate your heart. Choose a book of the Bible to read through and study. I recommend having a plan instead of mindlessly or haphazardly jumping around. All of God's Word is valuable, but going through it systematically is going to add a richness to your study. So if you're unsure where to start, I recommend reading the Gospel of John or the book of James, the epistle of Philippians, or the book of Proverbs. One fun trick with Proverbs is that it has 31 chapters, and there are 31 days in a month, so you can easily read one chapter each day. If you get behind, just look at the calendar and read the chapter that corresponds with today's date. It's a practice that I have done month after month after month, and I have been so much better for it. Now, Faith is doing an excellent three-year Bible reading plan that has you read five to six chapters a week, going through the Bible chronologically. Our faith group has been reading along with this for two years, and it has been so beneficial. Grab a couple ladies and form a D group to commit to studying and growing together. Join a Bible study. We have several options for women's Bible studies here at the church. Mornings, evenings, in a home, at the church, with childcare. These are such great ways to hold you accountable for reading the Bible. They allow you to build community with sisters in Christ and grow in your knowledge of and a love for God. Now, there are some fantastic devotional books and commentaries out there. Just make sure you aren't reading about God's Word more than you're actually reading His Word. And as you're reading your Bible, you may want to follow a pattern to organize your thoughts and help you retain what you read. One popular idea is the SOAP method. And when you SOAP, You write down the scripture, any observations you make, an application to your life, and then you end with a prayer based on the passage. And all you need is your Bible, a journal, and a pen. So let's do a sample together. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah 26.3. So if I was going to soap this, I would write this in my journal. S, scripture. So I would just copy out the scripture. Isaiah 26.3. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. 
Then I would go to O and record any observations I make just from looking at the words. So you will keep. God designed and sustains us. I love the phrase for perfect peace. It's not freedom from suffering or hardship, but a peace in our soul because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Does this verse remind you of any other verses? It reminds me of Philippians 4, 7 that talks about the peace that surpasses understanding. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we are called to have a mind that is dependent. I'm kind of a word nerd, so thinking about synonyms, steadfast, unwavering, devoted. And we have to trust in Him. And trust is a choice. It's not based on emotion. So those are the things that I would write down for my O, my observations. The next letter in the acronym is application, A. So I would write down that God's job is to keep me in perfect peace, but my job is to be dependent and trusting. I think I got the better end of the deal, don't you? Too often I look inwardly or outwardly for peace instead of upwardly. Now whether or not my surroundings feel peaceful I can rest in the perfect peace that comes from trusting my Creator, my Savior, and my Helper. But I must not waver in my devotion. Blessing comes from being steadfast. And lastly, P is for prayer, where you can just pray. I find it really helpful to write out my prayer. So I could write, Lord, thank you for the perfect peace you freely and generously offer to all who would come to you. Help me to train my mind to depend on you, trusting you at all times. Jen Wilkin, author and Bible study leader, has a similar format she follows. She says we should first look at a passage for comprehension, then interpretation and application. If you haven't read her book, Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds, I highly recommend it. Like go and order it on Amazon and it will be at your house the next day it's that good, and it's that worth the read. Now, ladies, I know that this may feel a little clunky at first. You may not have much to write, and that's okay. Reading the Bible is a habit that we must develop. Like with anything, it may be difficult at first as we're finding the rhythm that works best for us. Like working out a physical muscle, it gets easier the more you do it. Spiritual weightlifting takes time and effort. If you read a passage and don't feel incredibly inspired, that's okay. We don't read for the emotional high, we read out of obedience. Another important weapon in fighting overwhelm is memorizing scripture. Can you say with David, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you? When you're overwhelmed, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind what you have hidden in your heart, sometimes even years later. In the book I referenced earlier, Jen Wilkins says, For years, I viewed my interaction with the Bible as a debit account. I had a need, so I went to the Bible to withdraw an answer. But we do much better to view our interaction with God as a savings account. I stretch my understanding daily, I deposit what I glean, and I patiently wait for it to accumulate in value, knowing that one day I will need to draw on it. We don't need to wait for a wilderness season to start reading and memorizing God's Word. Start today. So let me ask you, do you have an it is written for the sin and temptation and overwhelm you will face in this life? 
I've created a document with different overwhelming factors and some verses you can read, pray, and memorize. I've also included two blank columns for you to record your own passages as you study God's Word. Highlight the things that you're struggling with. Write these verses on note cards. Commit to doing the SOAP method on each one. Hide these verses in your heart so that when you're overwhelmed, you can say, It is written. In conclusion, when you're tempted or overwhelmed or going through a wilderness, you can rest in the beautiful truth from Scripture. That God the Father created you and loves you. Jesus went before you as your example, and he defeated Satan, rendering him powerless. And the Holy Spirit guides you daily as your advocate and your helper. Just like when I was hiking in the Narrows, we must take the advice of the park ranger. If you sense danger, look for higher ground. Psalm 68.2 When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it proclaims freedom to the captives and grace to the hurting. God, we look to the example of Jesus and are so encouraged to see that through the Spirit's power, we can resist temptation and fight overwhelm. Help us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers. God, I pray for a hunger for your word that we may know you and love you more. Thank you for your promise that you are always with us in the wilderness, deep in the valleys, and on the mountaintops. We choose to abide and obey that we might bear fruit that would bring you glory. Give us your perfect peace as we choose to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Faith Women Podcast. We hope you were both encouraged and challenged by what you heard today. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode. If you're in our area, we'd love to have you join us at Faith Baptist Church in Youngsville on a Sunday or at any of our special events. You can learn more about our ministry online at faithnc.org women. See you next month.